Joshua 23. The last time we saw the controversy regarding the altar that the two and a half tribes built near the Jordan River and the subsequent settling of that dispute over the altar. Tonight we're going to see the first of a two-part parting speech by Joshua in his last days and what we can learn from him. Verse 1. Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old, advanced in age. And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain, to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan, with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as the Lord your God has promised you. Therefore, be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Unless you go among these nations, these who remain among you, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations, but as for you, no one has been able to stand against you this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you, as he has promised you. Therefore, take diligent heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God, or else, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you and make marriages with them and go in to them and they to you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you. But they shall be snares and traps to you, and scourges on your sides, and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Whew, that's a mouthful. <laughs> so Joshua knows that his time left on earth is short, but he cares enough to give the leaders wisdom, this parting wisdom. Verse 3 and 4 is a reminder of what God did for the children of Israel. Promises fulfilled. These were past and present fulfillment. He says to them, you saw what God did to those nations for your sake. You realize that this couldn't happen by natural means. He's trying to remind them. And he says, don't, pretty much don't forget God. He did it because he loves you. Verse 5, it's a reminder of what God can and will do. These are continuing promises, a future fulfillment. You will continue to see what God can and will do for you depending on the magnitude of your commitment to him. Now, we could see the same thing in our lives. We can take this application and bring it to modern day. One, what did God do? Past, past tense. Well, he did create us with precision and great care. Two Sundays ago, I went into uh, detail about how we are fearfully and wonderfully made and how God says he knew us even before we were in the womb. And we talked a lot about the physiological systems of the body. When the body doesn't work right, we sure realize it. But when it's working perfect, a lot of times we take it for granted. So we have a, a physical body that's a great machinery, none matched like it that the human, a human could build. It's not possible. 
But what God also did was he also took care of our spiritual selves. He sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. He was a propitiation for our sins. He was the atoning sacrifice, the blood of, of the lamb, the innocent lamb that was shed, washes away our sins. So really, if you look at it, God has given us two lives, two beautiful lives, one physical that we can enjoy and also a life spiritual that we can enjoy. And Paul says, though the outward man is perishing, uh, that the inward man is being renewed day by day. So we've got two births, if we have the second birth, if we want it, of course. The second thing is what God will do, future fulfillment. Well, God will continue to mold us into his son's image. That's a good thing. He will use us to glorify himself, and he will give us eternal bliss in heaven. Heather was telling me this week about the Beth Moore study that she did, and she made a good point to the ladies. She said, God does great things with us, and God uh, gives us so much, but not always the way we would like it. Sometimes we would like our bodies to feel better. Sometimes we would like a new car or a new house. Sometimes we would like things materially in our flesh. But God gives us what he needs. He gives us spiritual blessings, right? So to be continued to be molded into the image of Jesus Christ and to glorify God. At the end of our lives, when God sees us, we would hope to hear from him, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Look how your life was used. You were obedient to me. And you magnified me, meaning God, and and. And this is the fruit of your labor, and which we didn't see on this side of eternity. So we, we can see the same um, blessings even today. Verse 6, I find this interesting. He says, therefore, be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Now, that word struck me hard. Why would he say be very courageous? So I had to go look it up. In the Hebrew, the word is kozak. Very powerful sounding word. I hope I pronounced it properly. The word means, it's a primitive root, it means to be strong, to causatively strengthen, to cure, to conquer, to fortify, prevail, or withstand. These are all proper terms that could be used for this term, be courageous. So the question is, why such strong terms used just for obeying God? Hey, obey God. But be very courageous to obey God. Well, two reasons. One, it goes against our fleshly desires to obey. As Christian as Christian can be, we still struggle with obedience to God. Um, you know, we just do. We, none of us obey him 100% of the time. Otherwise, we wouldn't sin, now would we? So that tells you right there that we struggle with that in our flesh. And the world we live in is opposed to obeying God. And you see this, this ebb and flow I like to look at, at, the persecution and the temptation cycle. Sometimes we're out and out persecuted by the forces of darkness for being Christians. We're, 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 we're pressed, we're pushed. Satan does everything he can to, to torment us for obeying God. And then sometimes we get a, a, a break and then there's temptations. Then Satan tries a different route. Instead of the, the pressure, he uses a temptation to try to lure you, right? It worked with the children of Israel, with the Moabite women. Uh, so you see this ebb and flow between persecution and temptation. The second thing is another reason why he says to be very courageous when not departing from God's word is it's hard to do when everyone else is doing the contrary. Peer pressure. It's not just for teens. <laughs> it's for adults, too. It's easy to give in and hard to resist peer pressure. And I've nicknamed New Jersey Sodom. 
We live in Sodom, New Jersey. Think about it. You know, if you talk to a lot of even New Jersey Christians, their attitude towards God's word is kind of cavalier. You know, it's more relaxed. It's more a liberal interpretation. Talk to Christians about what they think of marriage. You know, well, what's acceptable to them? Well, what does the Bible say? Divorce, what's acceptable to them? Well, what does the Bible say? Adultery, same thing. Well, adultery, everybody does it. It's in the church. It's permeating. Eh, you know, it's, it happens. Abortion, greed, a lot of greed in the church. And you, unfortunately, it usually starts with the top, right? So these are the things that people find acceptable. Who are we voting for in this state? I'm not going to get into politics, who to vote for, who not to vote for. But the incumbents reflect our acceptance of this leaven in our society. We just accept it. You know, it's business as usual. If it weren't for the word of God, I would think that I was the crazy one when it came to some of these issues. You know, we as Christians, we want to take a hard line. We want to say, well, if God says it's right or wrong, then I agree with it. But there's so much pressure, especially from the media, to try to get us to change our belief systems. I'll tell you what, in the Asian and African Christian communities, they would be appalled by Christian behavior in the Western world. So I would ask Christian, whoever's listening to this message, what do you accept that goes against the word of God? And what do you reject that God says is good? Isaiah talks, was it Isaiah 5:20, that there'll be a time where good will be called evil and evil will be called good. We're living in that day, folks. So going back to be very courageous, it takes courage to make a commitment to God against much opposition from within and without. The Bible tells us that we get opposition from the world. We see that. The flesh. <laughs> Sometimes you look in the mirror, there's your enemy and the devil. Those are the three things that are pulling at us and trying to get us to come off our stance for God. And then he says, the second part of that verse, not only be courageous, but he says, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Or, translation, don't deviate. Don't waver. Don't entertain any path but the narrow path. Speeding it up to the New Testament, right? It only takes a side path in the wrong direction to be way off. If you look at, and I did this today, I looked at the, my son's globe, and you see Los Angeles on the coast of California, right? Pretty much. And then you see, go, if you go westward, you'll see a little island in the middle of the Pacific called Hawaii, right? And if you take a course from, let's say, LAX, the airport, and you, and you go straight to Hawaii, and you plot your course, right? You're part of the crew that's going to fly you there. You know, one degree is about this small. If you look at 360 degrees and divide it up into their perspective degrees, one degree is so small. But when you take that, if you're one degree off from L.A. to Hawaii, and you magnify that by the few thousand miles it takes to get there, you're going to miss Hawaii completely. As a matter of fact, you're going to fly right past it, and you're not even going to see it, because one degree will set you that far off. And you'll end up in Asia somewhere and say, what am I doing here? I was supposed to go to Hawaii. You see what I'm saying? You see the point? One degree. So don't turn to the right or to the left. Um, and I, I can't tell you how many people I've met that, you know, try to talk to them about the Lord and they can finish my scripture sentences. And I'm like, bro, how'd you get in this position? They deviated one degree and they came off the path and now they're in a world of hurt, but they still remember God's word, you know, but they didn't follow it. 
verse 7 and 8, he says, you know, go, he says, you're going to go among the nations, he says, but be careful not to make mention of the name of their gods, the pagan gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them, and you shall not serve them nor bow down to them, but you shall hold fast uh, to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. God says, you know, of course, he's speaking through uh, Joshua, he says, don't even make mention of their gods. Does that sound legalistic? Well, of course, we shouldn't worship the pagan gods, but what do you mean, don't make mention of them? Isn't that legalistic? Fear-mongering, you know. But it starts with something that seems very harmless. See, this is the slippery slope theory. Entertaining sin a little bit. You see, well, I'm just talking about it. Just talking about sin. That leads to, well, I'm just looking at it. That leads to, well, I just did it a few times. It's not overtaking me. That leads to, how the heck did I get hooked up on this and how do I get out of it? You see the slippery slope theory? And that's God's word. You know, we need to hold fast to God's word because there's enough things out there to push us off the path without us doing it ourselves. Think about taxes. Starts with fudging a deduction here or there. By the time six to ten years are up, the IRS is knocking on your door, and now you're ashamed because of something that you did that's been illegal. Adultery starts with an innocuous conversation. Some people rationalize it. Well, after all, I do work with her. I might as well talk to her. Uh, a lunch date is next. A drink after work, and I don't have to finish the sentence. You know where that leads to. What about omission? See, we, we like to talk about, okay, the, the top ten sins, you know, the adulteries, the murders, the thievery, and we certainly look good when it comes to the, the top ten. But what about omission? What about not being in the Word, not praying? Starts with coming late to service. Then you skip, start skipping services, skipping social functions with lame excuses. You're isolated now. You're not accountable. Bam, what happens? Okay, how did I get into this mess? Starts with the sins of omission, right? It's funny how many in ministry don't think it can happen to us, but we are, ironically, Satan's biggest targets. Verse 9. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations, but as for you, no one has been able to stand against you this day. Great and strong nations. See, God didn't send the children of Israel to go to Canaan to uh, wipe out a bunch of kindergartners. <laughs> I mean, these guys were not lightweights. Well, let's, let's refresh our memory. Well, first of all, the first time in Kadesh Barnea, the, the, ten, the 10 out of the 12 came back and said, whoa, these guys are big, mountainous. There's no way we can take them. They were so scared, even after they saw the Red Sea parted and everything, they looked at these guys and they were terrified. So, these guys weren't lightweights. They were big physically. They were imposing. They were mountain people, some of them. You see what's going on in Afghanistan. A lot of these guys we can't get with our high-tech military equipment. Same thing. The children of Israel in the northern campaign were going after mountain people. These guys knew the terrain. They were tough guys. They had better equipment. And they knew their terrain. So he's saying to them, remember, guys, just in case you forgot, you didn't drive those Canaanites out by any of your own talents. God did that for you. Just make sure you, you don't forget that. Often God shows us insurmountable odds beforehand and allows us to understand the magnitude of the situation prior so that when we're victorious, he can show us, listen, it wasn't you. Remember your failings. Remember your shortcomings. Remember you're saying, I don't want to do this. And now you're victorious. It was because God's hand was in it. 
I look at Gideon, one of my favorite stories. He's, he's such a brave man that he's uh, threshing the wheat in the wine press. And I'm being sarcastic. He doesn't want to go up where it's windy and, and the mountainous areas because the enemy might see him and, and take his stuff or attack him. So he does it in the wine press. Not quite as efficient, but it's certainly safe. And God comes to him. And uh, he wants him to go against the Midianites. Well, Gideon, fleeces, he fleeces him twice, and he also tests him a third time. Uh, and also, he, he starts out with 32,000 men, and God says, too many guys. Cut it down. Whittle it down. Make an announcement. Hey, you guys who are afraid you want to go home, go home. Bam. From 32,000, it goes down to 10,000. God looks at it, and he goes, hmm, still too many. <laughs> because I know that if you win, you're going to try to take the glory. Let's whittle it down a little bit more. Take them by the, the, the waterway there. I tell them all to take a drink. You know, well, some are going to lap it, the water with their hands. Some are going to get down on all, all fours like a dog and lick it up, right? And he says, let me divide it that way. And he divides it, whittles it down to 300. God goes, 300, good, good. Uh, the Midianites are an, an innumerable company like the sands of the sea. There's a lot of guys there. 300, that, that's about right. That's what I want. Go ahead and win now. I look at my life, too. You know, we're a, I still say that we're a young church. We look around. There's a lot of established churches around us. We're really the baby on the block. You know, we're, we're the new kid on the block. But you know what? We're holding fast to the word of God. And 10, 15 years, maybe we'll have a building. Maybe we'll be, you know, double, triple the size. I don't have, as a pastor, I don't have big advertising programs. I want people to come because we're teaching the word of God, not because we promote. Uh, so, hey, if we, 10 years down the road, um, pretty, pretty impressive uh, situation maybe as a church, I know I can look back and I know everybody in this room will hold me accountable and say, hey, Joe, remember, remember the hungry years. Remember the years that you struggled. Remember the years that you were sick and fallen apart. Remember how you, year to year, you wondered how we were still standing. You guys can remind me of that so I don't get a big head. But it's true because men and women, we're egocentric. You know, we see something, we do something, we accomplish something. We all of a sudden think that we're great. And God doesn't want that in his people. He wants to root that out. Whew. Verse 10. He says, One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he has promised you. Now, this happened literally previous to this point, and literally it also happened subsequent to this point. <laughs> there were some of these battles that the children of Israel fought, and they didn't lose anybody. Uh, in some battles, they lost people, usually because they sinned, and God was not 100% behind them. And even, not only in numbers, what the scripture talks about here, but also in mismatched, mismatched strength. The runt of the litter of Jesse's household, David, remember, he fought the lion and the bear, and then he fought Goliath. And it was not possible by human means, just by the sheer size and strength of this man, just by the fact that he couldn't even carry Saul's armor, just by the fact that uh, Goliath's equipment was bigger than David's stature himself, right? And he was able to take him out with one stone because the Lord was on his side. And that's, that's something that we have to uh, take heed to. And verse 11, he says, Therefore take diligent heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Or else. <laughs> I like that, or else. I guess that's where originally that, that term came from, God. Or else. Continue the relationship with God or else. Um, once the relationship is broken, don't expect to enjoy the same benefits of that relationship. It was, uh, 
you know, the Bible did speak about this. It was a spiritual adultery that the children of Israel committed against God. They, they cheated on him. You know, they committed adultery. They had other lovers, as God said. They played the harlot. They were uncovered in their, in their shame and their nakedness. All these terms that are used as if it was a, a husband to his wife, right? And when a spouse commits adultery, uh, even here, they really shouldn't expect to continue to enjoy all the benefits of a marriage. I mean, there's consequences to that. I tell you what, on a side note, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with our society. We have no-fault divorce. doesn't matter. Sometimes this, the husband is abusive. Sometimes the wife's abusive. You know, it, it cuts both ways. No-fault divorce says, hey, it doesn't matter. You know, nobody's responsible. You know, just divvy everything up and be on your way. No-fault motor vehicle accidents. I see that as a police officer. Um, somebody was at fault. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What's this no-fault nonsense, right? A guy who uh, goes to a bar and gets sloshed and then goes out and, and crashes and, and runs somebody over. Who does he sue? It's not his fault. He sues the bar. It's the bartender's fault. It's the proprietor's fault, right? It's not his fault. So people are not held accountable for their sins in our society. And we get desensitized to that people because we see it so much. We're used to it. Although God is long-suffering, he eventually allowed the children of Israel to suffer the consequences for their spiritual adultery. He made them suffer the consequences. And there's consequences to sin. People shouldn't expect God to do anything in their lives when they haven't repented and they have no commitment to him. Verse 14. Behold, this day I am going the way of the earth, of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God has spoken concerning you. All have come to pass for you, and not one word of them has failed. Therefore it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. Verse 14, Joshua says, I am going the way of all the earth. Translation, I'm going to die soon. <laughs> that's what it means. I love the terms that they use, uh, but it, that's a pretty easy one to interpret. Does that mean that Joshua didn't have enough faith? I'm going to die soon. What happened to positive confession, Josh? What are you doing? You know. But he says, listen, I'm going to go by the way of all the earth. Joshua was a man of faith. That was an obvious fact. So um, that, that nonsense about... He wasn't being positive enough, or we're not being positive enough. A fact is a fact. He's going to die, and he knew it. I knew somebody very close to me who knew the night before uh, that he was going to die, uh, and uh, he just knew it. There are people who, you know, nobody knows the exact expiration date of their bodies, but there are people when they get close that they, they just know. They sense the feeling based on the way their bodies are functioning that they're going to die. So whether Joshua knew because he had some major affliction or because God told him, I don't know, but he knew he was going to die. Two Sundays ago, we talked about when sin entered the world, death entered the world. On this side of eternity, sickness and death are a reality. It's a fact of life. The second part of verse 14, he, he says, not one thing has failed about God. That's the God we serve. You can be sure that the promises spelled out in Scripture will not fail. 
Even though Joshua was dying, he didn't die without hope and faith. This was a man who died in confidence. His confidence was in the Lord. He knew the life that he had lived. He fought the good fight of faith. He was obedient to the Lord. And you know know what his concern was? Not for himself. It was the people that he was going to lead. He wanted to make sure those people had the same dedication that he did because he loved them. But this man was dying not Oh, oh, woe is me. Oh, help me. I'm cling to me. He died in confidence and hope and faith. Now, contrast that with many people who died today uh, that maybe some of you have come across and they're terrified because they don't know what lies for them on the other side. That's why we studied the Bible, because on the, the time that God calls on us to minister to somebody who's dying, we should have the answers. First Peter 3.15, I covered that on Sunday. But there's a, a huge difference between people who die in, 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 in being terrified without any hope and the people who die in hope and faith like Joshua. Big difference. Verse 15 through 16. So he talks about uh, the good things that could come upon them or the bad things that can come upon them. The children of Israel had two choices and only two. They couldn't make up their third choice. Well, what about if we slip a little bit and we kind of follow pagan gods and you still forgive us and let us go, but we're still in the sin? No. God said two choices. One, choose good, choose life, choose peace, choose serenity, abundance, and fruitfulness, predicated on a relationship with God. Or the second choice is choose pain, choose sorrow, Choose war, choose famine, choose loss, barrenness, and death, which unfortunately a lot of them chose. And that was predicated on abandoning God via spiritual harlotry. You know, it's interesting. That reminds me of today. It's the same scenario with Jesus. People will worship Jesus one day. Everybody will. Every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus is Lord. The Bible is very clear on that. And God gives us a choice. There's, there's plenty of time to repent. Plenty of time. Although, you know, I, I shouldn't say that because, you know, it, it could run, it, there has been, let me just say that, there's been thousands of years to repent, okay? But you either rebel against God and you choose the latter things that we spoke about, or you repent and you choose life and you choose the way that God has provided for our eternal salvation through Jesus Christ and you can choose the former. So nothing's changed between here and today. God still gives us two choices. Abide in him, abide in that relationship, or reject him and rebel against him. And there's the ramifications for both. So this evening is a very simple message. I just want to read a few quotes from the New Testament. Uh, John 15, 4 through 8. Jesus says... Abide in me and I in you. That's a relationship right there in the first phrase or the first sentence. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in in me. And that's where things change a little bit. Whereas Jesus is the source of life. Okay, yes, we have a relationship. We abide in each other. However, we cannot survive autonomous of the life-giving vine. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, 
and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. I talked about what this means on, on a Sunday. Uh, that's certainly not a place that we want to be. Uh, we certainly don't want to be separated from Christ. We shouldn't want to be. But if we are separated from Christ, we're withered, we're dried up, and there's nothing left to do with you but throw you into the fire. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. The importance of scripture, my words abide in you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And that's the result of abiding that relationship. Fruit is produced. It can't be produced any other way. Uh, Another scripture. How do we love God? John 14. Go to the previous chapter. Two verses, 23 and 24. John 14. Jesus answered and said to him, again, two choices. One, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The Father and Christ are a package deal. They're not autonomous of each other. You get one, you get the other, and you get the Holy Spirit. They all come together. Uh, So you get three for the price of one, so to speak. Verse 24, He who does not love me, second choice, does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I like to use that as a witnessing tool for people to say, well, I have my own relationship, I kind of do my own thing, and I say, well, do you read the word? Well, not really. Well, let me read what Jesus says. Jesus puts us in two camps, those who love him and those who don't. Do you call yourself a Christian? Yes, I do. Okay, well, let's see what Jesus says about if you really, truly love him. And then I read it, and then I say, well, I wouldn't want to be in the other camp. You know, Jesus says, if you love me, my words have to abide in you. You follow my words. Well, how do you know if you love him if you've never read the word, and how can you follow him if you don't know what the words say? It's just simple logic, right? You can use logic at times. It works. And then 1 John 2, 3 and 6, or 2, 3 through 6. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. I just was reading this the other night. It says, verse 3, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. How do we know? Again, people say, well, I know God. I have my own relationship with God. Really? Well, let me, let me see what, what the Bible says about that. By this we know that we know him, we know God, if we keep his commandments. It's contingent upon that. Four, he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected, or has been completed, or be made mature in him. By this we know we are in him. How do we know that we are in him? By what we just read. He who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. So, and, and we can go on. Psalm 119, you know, the, your word is a, a, a light, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then Hebrews 4.12, one more, talks about the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the, the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, verse 13, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So, wrapping it all up, what we see is that Joshua's words were loving. They had truth in them. They were instructional. And nobody could say from that point on, well, nobody told me. Uh, Mostly, or all God's men and women pointed people to God and they pointed to people to God through his word. So tonight, as we close, uh, this is just a time for introspection, a time for us to look at ourselves and see where we are with the word. Um, as a pastor, sometimes I, I feel
feel like I'm shackled to the Bible because I'm always studying. But you know, I can't get in trouble that way. <laughs> I noticed that when I'm shackled to the Bible and I'm always studying, I can't get in trouble. So just as Joshua, and I'm not, you know, Joshua came up with it first, I would just say the same thing. Where are we in the Word? And um, we should think about that tonight. Let's pray. Pastor, sometimes I, 